Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Matt Oppenheimer, co-founder and CEO of Remitly, a Seattle-based mobile payments platform enabling consumers to send and receive payments around the world that aims to provide the full suite of financial services to immigrants and migrants. The inspiration behind Remitly came when Matt was working in Kenya in 2010 and saw how difficult it was to send and receive money overseas. He began working on the problem immediately and has since grown the business to a rumored $1.5 billion valuation in 2020, a newly minted unicorn. The company has raised almost $500 million in debt and equity from top industry VCs, including Generation Investment Management, Naspers PayU, Stripes Group, Threshold, QED, the World Bank's IFC, Jeff Bezos, and many, many more. And now join me in a wonderful interview with Matt Oppenheimer. Matt, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It's really a treat for us to have you on board. Can we start by hearing a bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. So my background is co-founder and CEO of Remitly currently. My more detailed background is I'm a fifth generation Idahoan, grew up in Boise, Idaho, went to Dartmouth undergrad, did investment consulting, mostly for endowed nonprofits, which was very purposeful and meaningful, which will be a theme hopefully that you'll hear. And then did my MBA at Harvard and after Harvard joined Barclays Bank in a general management program, not investment banking, but in corporate banking in the UK was my first stint. And then I was in Nairobi, Kenya and running, it was head of mobile and internet banking initiatives for Barclays Bank Kenya. That is where the idea for Remitly came from, which I started about nine years ago. Over my life, I've also traveled to close to 100 countries, lived and worked on three continents. I saw personally how hard it was for me to send money internationally. And when I was living in Kenya, I was getting paid in British pounds, living in Kenyan shillings. Eventually, I had to get money back to US dollars. While that was painful, it was a lot more painful for a lot of my Kenyan friends to receive money. So we'll talk about Remitly in a minute, but that catches you up to speed on my background pre-starting Remitly nine years ago. Love it. Love it. I myself joined and you know one of those international programs at another bank. And I know that it takes a different kind of profile for people to join, you know, those programs. Why were you interested in going abroad? Particularly you mentioned you being fifth generation Idahoan, right? What pushed you to explore the rest of the world? Well, I'm really grateful, I think partially because I grew up in Boise. My parents always really valued travel. So I traveled a lot from a young age and had the fortune and privilege to do that. But when I was graduating from business school, I've always been drawn to understanding different cultures, different people. And when I thought about, again, a general management experience, not investment banking and general management, I mean, the UK corporate bank, which was my first job, was thousands of people and a bank that had been around longer than the United States. I was compelled by just how different it would be. And I think while some people are compelled to things that are similar to what they know. I've always been drawn to things and individuals and experiences that are very different than what I know. And I certainly got that in London. But one of my professors at HBS gave me the very good advice when I joined or when I was deciding to join Barclays as my first job post MBA. And he said, okay, if you do that, and your goal is to have a different experience and to work abroad in a different culture, London will be great. But given that your passion, I had traveled Africa in the past, and I'd always been drawn to it, he said, please just Remember, after you're in London for a while and you're with them in the mothership, still follow your decision to go 
even more international to Kenya and have that experience. And I'm really glad I had that advice because at the mothership, one Churchill place at Barclays in London, it was a very, I think, uh, the road less traveled to leave the mothership and go to Kenya. And all my Barclays friends at the time were like, why would you like, how is that working your way up the ladder at Barclays? And I was less drawn by that and more drawn again by new and different experiences that I knew would push me and individuals that I knew and certainly did teach me a lot about the world by giving me a different perspective. That's where you really learn how banking works, right? So, you know, you mentioned that you saw the difficulties in moving money around the world and sending money at the retail level, and that this is definitely a timeless problem in industry, right, for several, I guess, centuries. What made you consider, you know, there was a better way of doing this and that you could be the one to fix it? Well, I think that what convinced me that there was a better way of doing it was the fact that when I was in Kenya, there was a domestic mobile wallet called M-Pesa, which most people in FinTech know about, but, you know, and, and has obviously really transformed domestic financial services in Kenya and was well on the road to do that in 2010 and 2011 when I was in Kenya, but had already made a big impact. And so I saw that. I saw my own experience of how difficult it was to send money internationally. And then I saw a lot of my Kenyan friends who had relatives in the US or in Europe and were getting money from them, but were getting it from them in a way that, you know, was like so painful. Like, hey, I use my sister's Bank of America debit card. I mean, let alone the compliance issues with that, the fees, the inconvenience was just, you know, palpable. So, um, and I was drawn by how, how far that money went in my friends' lives, right? A lot of remittances are used for basic living expenses and for emergency medical expenses, you name it. And so while my pain point was challenging, there's kind of two segments of remittances that, that folks on this podcast might know, but you have your kind of develop to develop, broadly speaking, which is the pain point I felt that expats feel, I think that's the market transfer-wise goes after, banks go after. But there's always been other segment of what people kind of more traditionally call remittances, which is who Western Union, MoneyGram, et cetera, have served for, in the Western Union example, 160 years. And I think intuitively, everybody has known there'd be a better way to do remittances. But so much of starting a business is having it be done at the right time. And with Impesa, I saw that that timing was there. And why did I think I could be the one that would that could do it? You know, there's a little naivete in that, right? Like, I didn't know. We can talk a lot about how complex it is to start a money transmission business. I didn't know all the complexities when I started the business. I just knew it was a pain point, and it was a meaningful pain point to solve. I knew it was the right time as the world was shifting digital. And I think I had, you could either call it ignorance or the audacity to think that I could get through the the challenges of starting a money transmission business, which are pretty pretty significant. And your initial business model is not necessarily the one you have today. You, you have evolved as a company, right? Can you take us a little bit through the evolution? Yeah, so our vision is to transform the lives of immigrants and their families by providing the most trusted financial services on the planet. And if you break that out, there are some themes we'll talk about today, trust, financial services broadly, not just remittances. And so I can talk about some of the early pivots if that's helpful. But the biggest thing is as we have built trust and served over 3 million customers with our remittance service, we have had customers come to us and say, I trust you. I know you. You provide a great service and trust is paramount for any financial services company. And once you've built that trust, customers say, oh, help me do more things within the pain points I have when it comes to financial services. And so we looked at a wide range of financial services for our next product line. And just earlier this year, we launched Passbook, which is a bank account specifically designed for immigrants. 
that has much more seamless remittances, has the ability to obviously travel internationally with ease and low fees or no fees. And it has, you know, I don't know if, if you experienced, but when I moved to London, just getting a bank account set up without having the documentation of somebody born and raised in the UK, a lot of our customers face that pain point when they come to the US. So specific onboarding or KYC, folks probably on this podcast know, know your customer processes that are designed for immigrants and create a better customer experience. So anyway, Passbook is is early. We launched it early, just early this year, but it's, I think, very promising as the next product line towards our vision of broad financial services for immigrants that improve their lives. Yeah, I even like that you you have a flag of everyone's native yes. country, right? Certainly, we had one, I got to confess. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Yes, people love that feature. The, the card slit, it's very, I think, well-designed. I think it helps people with a sense of pride and belonging, which is what we're all about. And so it's been exciting. Matt, I, I want to ask you both about navigating regulation and about your fundraising journey, but I think they're highly related, those two questions, because I have talked to other entrepreneurs who were in the remittances space in the past, and not necessarily on the podcast, but just in general, and they themselves you know, recognize that this, their minefield, their regulatory minefield is the biggest challenge, and even that some investors see remittances as you know, radioactive material. How have you been able to overcome these challenges and perfect the process that is clearly working for you now? Well, I think it's like any entrepreneur in any sector that persistence ultimate persistence and maybe focus are the two things that I think define success for a lot of early stage businesses and entrepreneurs. For our business, compliance is hard, risk and fraud prevention, et cetera, is hard, dispersing funds is hard accepting payments is hard and just getting a bank account. There's a concept called de-risking that banks generally don't want to even just give a corporate bank account to a money transmitter, given the risk profiles is hard. And then after you've got all that done, building a product is hard. So there were a lot of hard areas that I can dive into. But since you mentioned the compliance element, the way that we started going back to the focus point is we started not only in the U.S., to the Philippines was our first market for the first several years. We started only sending money from Washington state to the Philippines because in the U.S. context, money transmissions regulated at the state level. Gave us a place to start, gave us a toehold. And that focus was important so we didn't spread ourselves too thin and run out of capital or time, which is what I think kills most companies. And the focus helps with that. And that focus helped us iterate because I mentioned all those, all those areas that are challenges for a remittance business, but you can't do all of them at once. You need to iterate. So I needed a license to get, to get a product, to get capital, to get disbursement partners, to get risk systems set up. And so that focus on just Washington State to the Philippines was, I think, very strategic and very helpful in our long-term success. And I guess this is what helped convince your, your initial investors like QED and other very prestigious investors, that focus between that very specific corridor. But there are other issues as well that you mentioned that go beyond just regulatory concerns. How did you approach those other verticals? It really depended on the vertical. But yeah, you know, we raised from QED, but interestingly, that was our basically third round when we actually got to them, because at that point, we had enough of the kind of unit economics and customer data it was early. We had enough to kind of get to their sweet spot where they actually invest. We raised primarily from Seattle-based angel investors and the seed fund in Seattle called Founders Co-op. 
those early days. And so they were investing in much more of the vision than and the team than a fully built out product because we needed capital to get a license because they're like net worth requirements as a money transmitter. So anyway, it's an iterative process, but I think that the other business partners and other areas, it again took a lot of iteration and persistence. So some of the big banks would not bank us. They just said, no, you're a money transmitter. So we started with small banks and small processors, and we were always above board. But if we learn about the financial system is it's all intertwined and the small banks and small processors ultimately roll up to those big banks and the big banks will shut you off eventually. So the minute we started with small processor, we were always transparent and above board that we were money transmitter. But we knew at some point when we got to a certain scale, they'd shut us down. And so while that was happening, we were working with larger banks to go through their very lengthy compliance and like risk processes. And so by the time that we outgrew the small processor, we had approval of the big folks. And you kind of have to, I think, in a highly regulated, highly complex money transmission business or fintech more broadly, potentially, I think there's this duality of iterating and keeping it light and lean and getting something to market, but then thinking two steps ahead as you get to scale or as time goes by, you're going to need to get to the sustainable, scalable solution with the bigger partner or the one that you can stay with, but you just can't get those early days. So iterating to get there and then planning because it takes time with those partners and planning that well ahead is, I think, really important. And your partnerships have also evolved, right? How do you manage those kind of partnerships? And and do you envision yourself adding those type of unions? Yeah, we have a lot of partnerships. I mean, whether, you know, it's a corporate banking relationship is a partnership as a money transmitter, that might be less of a strategic partnership for a non-money transmitter. How we disperse funds, we've set up a phenomenal network of cash pickup locations and hundreds of millions of mobile wallets, millions of bank accounts that people can deposit do within minutes. You know, we set up partnerships to disperse funds in the roughly 70 countries that we send to via going deep and doing direct deals and direct integrations with a lot of those disbursement partners. So anyway, I'm going into a little more depth around our disbursement partners and our send banks, but there's partnerships in every aspect of our business. And I think that it's crucial that for companies in general to understand what should I build, what should I buy slash acquire, and what should I partner with. And I think for the partnership areas that I mentioned, as well as a bunch of others, that's been a great way for us to not try to do everything at once, but partner with folks where it strategically makes sense. Matt, we talk a lot about company culture, right, on this podcast. I think it's a, it's a topic it's very important, particularly at the early stage of a company. How have you approached building a, a culture at Remidly? And you know, if, if I were to join tomorrow, what's a culture that I would encounter? I love this question. How much time we got? As much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> I think interestingly, as a small company and just the three co-founders in the first month of our existence, we did an offsite where we put together our cultural values and what kind of culture of a company we wanted to create, which I think is pretty unique. And those cultural values have evolved because they should change. We now do it annually. They aren't reinvented, obviously, but one of our values continuously improved. And I think they are continuously improved every year. And uh, I think backing up from our cultural values, let's define culture because I also think it's an overused term. Culture is how people interact. It's how people get things done. And it's not like snacks in the kitchen and ping pong tables. I think that is an aspect. But I think people, when they talk about culture, oftentimes don't define it. And my definition is how people interact, right? Someone mentioned it's the smell of the place. When you kind of walk through an office, you can kind of get a sense of it. 
But if that's the definition, then defining how people interact and how people get things done is incredibly important to build a scalable business. Because if you don't define it, your culture will be defined for you. And that's what I mean by the values that we created. And they were honestly like mediocre values day one in the sense that they weren't specific enough. So as an example, one of our values day one was relationships. But if I am in a interview and trying to assess somebody on relationships, or if I'm in a performance review and trying to give someone credit for excelling in the value of quote relationships, let's be honest, it's not a great value. We have been more specific as we've refined values. So relationships, there's two that jump to mind that are important in my view to have healthy relationships. One is constructively direct, you know, is what you see, what you're going to get. And can I trust this person to just kind of be direct with me and not talk me on my back? And the other is be an empathetic partner. Like, does this person care? Do they have empathy? Do they care about who I am as a human? And each of those, if you look on our site, have very carefully worded one sentence or two sentence definitions of each of our values. I'm just pulling out two of them. But I mentioned that as an example, because I think that in order to create a great culture, You have to first define it with values, make sure those values are accessible in things like interviews and performance reviews. And then I think that I kind of call those two things the bookends. And then all the magic of culture happens in between. And I think what you see at Remitly is people talking about our values as the kind of normal course of business happens. And they're really kind of living, breathing elements of our company. They're not just on the wall. Oh, and the last thing on culture that I'd say is I think that they shouldn't be used as like a celebratory chest thumping. We're awesome at all these values. They should be used as a North Star. And everybody, including myself, including the company as a whole, teams and individuals across the company, the most important thing is self-awareness around here are my strengths, here are my weaknesses. But I know the North Star of how this company wants people to interact. And and I think that we have tried to be pretty intentional about that. So anyway, that was like six minutes. Sorry, too long, probably, but it's something I'm super passionate about. No, no, no. I think this is excellent. We we had uh, other unicorn founders and half the interview ends up being about culture. So don't feel bad. Uh, and, (laughs) And how do you ensure that you're bringing people that will honor or will look at this culture ideals as their North Star? And I guess this question can be can be divided. And how did you do it pre-COVID and how do you do it now? How do we assess for those cultural values when we're hiring for folks? Is that the Absolutely. question? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, when I mentioned the bookends, that's like the first component. And we have what you'll see if someone were to go through an interview loop at Remitly, each interviewer is assigned a cultural value or two, and each person is also not less relevant to culture, but defined a competency for that role, that specific role or two. And then the questions are, you know, we have a question bank that help people, both interviewers, both fully understand what we mean by those values and then ask thoughtful questions that really probe on those values. We also take a DEI angle embedded into each of the values and questions um, because I think our, our, our values are inclusive as well, which is really important. And then we have a pretty rigorous interview process that tries to really drill down deep into whatever those assigned values are for each interviewer and take a pretty, hopefully, objective stance to how somebody fits according to the values and vice versa, right? Like, hopefully that gives the interviewer a sense of, are these questions, you know, along the lines of a company that I want to be part of? Because it obviously, as with any interview, has to be a good two-way fit. No doubt. No doubt. And speaking of COVID, I guess, it's affected every every corner of the world, every person in the world. 
But on one end, I was expecting that it would really hit the demographic, the people that are responsible for sending those remittances. And in many ways it has, but also I, you know, I'm seeing the remittance levels have not really fallen off a cliff, you know? So what's going on with your customers? I have been so inspired by our customers during this period. Not surprised because just knowing who our customers are, but what has happened, and then I'll get to why I have those thoughts and feelings, is that our business has dramatically accelerated during COVID. And when I say that, like, you know, from May 2019 to May 2020, new customer growth tripled, which for our scale and size was very much unprecedented. And the reason that's the case is the fact that it's amazing every time I say this, but like 60 plus percent of remittances are still sent via offline cash-based remittance locations. And it's amazing in one sense, but it also, it took me a while to understand, and I mentioned the trust element earlier, but people are providing a lot of information to money transmitters like ourselves for compliance reasons, you know, their name, address, tax ID, or social security number. And then they're trusting us with their very hard-earned money and a big percentage of their paycheck to send it back to their families thousands of miles away, usually in a developing country. That is frightening. And so I used to think it was about speed. I used to think it was about it was about cost. Those things matter, but they only matter after a customer gets over the, can I trust you as much as I trust that corner store in my community where I know that person and I've sent with them for 10 years and I trust them. So people were already gaining trust for digital remittance providers. Hence, you know, 40% is originated, you know, digitally. COVID hits and I think it accelerated several years of that trust to digital providers because people either don't feel safe going to that physical location or can't because it's closed. And that has caused rapid growth in terms of new customers. And I knew when COVID was starting to unfold that that would likely happen. And I knew that coming out of COVID, it was going to mean a much larger business for us and us serving a lot more customers because of that rapid shift that was accelerated. What I did not expect and did not know is what would happen to our base of customers, which is where most of our business comes from, right? Like once we build that trust, the advantage is people come back again and again and again and again. And you looked at stats like the World Bank where they said remittances were gonna drop 20% globally. And our customer base and the markets in the markets we serve might be different if we were in markets like the Middle East or other areas, which I can talk about why that, that's the case later. But in our markets where employment is more fungible and where for all, I think, immigrants around the globe, the paramount importance of getting money home right now to families during what's obviously a global pandemic, a global recession, it's just never been more important. And so how our customers have fought through the hardships they've faced to be able to still support their customers during this time is the thing that I reflect on every day in terms of just how inspired I am by the sacrifices they make to be away from their families, to support their families, to not be able to see their families right now because of travel restrictions and to still provide for their families is unbelievable. And it's been an honor to serve them during this time. And I think that the only thing I ask is myself frequently is like, we're not a perfect company. There are a lot of customers we haven't served out there. Um, how can we do more and how can we do better for our customers because they need our service now more than ever. You mentioned it, the dynamics of, of this would be different in a market like the Middle East or other markets. What yeah. I think it's because as resilient and committed as immigrants are, if there are structural problems, like if a customer works on an oil field in Saudi, like you can't just, and you lose your job because oil prices are down and there's a recession, that customer can't just go become like an Instacart driver. 
as easily as in the US. And so I think the fungibility of employment in Europe and North America, which is where most of our business comes from, has helped with ability for our customers to still find work. And I think it'd be harder in, in other markets like the Middle East. But I don't know that because we're not in the Middle East. And if there's one thing that I think uh, folks should, should learn, it's like, don't bet against our customers or immigrants in general, given how resilient and committed they are to their families. I like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so most of your flows are going into emerging markets around the world. And you have actually spoken about the future of fintech in emerging markets. Specifically, you've talked about mobile wallets and why you think they're going to be increasingly important in emerging markets. Can you expand on this? Yeah, absolutely. I like to think that I have a fair amount of depth with mobile wallets specifically because of my time in Kenya and then building a money transmission business. And the punchline is the world's a big place. And it's such an obvious punchline, but often misunderstood in markets like the US where people haven't traveled as much. But like every market's different. The world's a big place. And it turns out very obviously, Mexico is very different. The Philippines is very different. Then India is very different than Kenya, you name it. And I've given some talks on what environments historically create the ecosystem for mobile wallets to thrive, which I can talk about in a minute. But I think the first thing is mobile wallets will not be successful everywhere. Full stop. They just won't. And I think there was a lot of hype about that, including myself coming from Kenya and seeing how successful it was. But they will be very successful some places. Bangladesh, Kenya, some other East African countries, a few select Latin American countries, but not everywhere. And I think that that's going to be the story of mobile wallets. I also think that mobile wallets as a term is often overused and that it's shifted where originally it was a telco. People talked about mobile wallets. They usually meant like telco led. And I think that's what most people still mean, right? Like M-Pesa was started by Safaricom because they had the asset of a wide range of cash in and out networks that they were using for airtime top up. And they could translate that into an asset to build a mobile wallet platform off of. They had universal almost market share. So interoperability was not an issue. You know, 80 plus percent market share when I was there. If you have an M-Pesa account, chances are four out of five the person next to you is going to have an M-Pesa account. And so I think that there were things like that that made it successful in Kenya. But I think that ecosystem doesn't exist everywhere. And I think the other thing that's changed is back when I was in Kenya in 2010 and 11, M-Pesa was invented, is the other asset that telcos had was they had exclusive kind of relationship with the customer because not all recipients had smartphones and had data access. And that obviously has changed in the last 10 years. So look at like Alipay or a WeChat wallet. Like, is that a mobile wallet? Do people call it a mobile wallet? Not really, but it is like digital platform that has transformed the lives for, I think, billions of people, right? So I think that you're going to see less telco-led mobile wallets over time, other than the ones that have already succeeded, like M-Pesa. And you're going to see more technology companies that maybe don't build themselves as mobile wallets per se but are offering really compelling financial services to recipients that have smartphones and reliable data access. And I think that we are on the beginning of that journey. But each, each market's different in terms of how people do commerce and need funds. And I can say that definitively given the 70 markets we operate in. Some, and I'd say they're the minority right now, want to get money into mobile wallets. Most want to get cash, meaning cash pickup. Some want bank deposit. Some want door-to-door delivery is popular in some markets. And it just really varies. So that's been an interesting lesson for me over the last nine years is just how much each country varies and how the product really needs to be customized to each country. And so for staying on this topic, for the future of 
mobile wallets, particularly for non-telco-driven mobile wallets. How do you make this distinction? So you mentioned that some are probably going to succeed and some countries not so much when it comes to mobile wallets. What are the ingredients? What are some of these ingredients necessary for a mobile wallet to thrive? And I know you've kind of mentioned this. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the ones I mentioned, but I'll recap. It's interoperable. If there's dominant market share of that telco, then interoperability is less of an issue and makes it easier. If regulation is friendly to the telco and doesn't have as much influence from banks or others in that country, then I think that that's a big, big variance. I think back in the day, the Central Bank of Kenya actually owned part of Safaricom. So I think that maybe made it easier for them from a regulatory standpoint. And then I think that the mobile wallets that have been successful have focused on one clear pain point to start. So people have seen what Pace has done, but going back to that focus point I mentioned earlier, that's true for telcos and mobile wallets as well. And people forget there's a good Gates Foundation paper from back in the day that M-Pesa, what pain point did they solve initially? It wasn't the broad things they've done now. It was a singular pain point in that people had migrated from the towns, the rural towns in Kenya to Nairobi. And it was a pain to get money back to the village. And the way that customers were getting it back to the village was giving it to Matatu drivers, which are like bus drivers. And a lot of that money was stolen or it was super high fees. And so that is a pain point that M-Pesa solved. Like you give money to, you can basically just send money via your M-Pesa wallet. And Gates did a good study that surveyed how many people were sending money back via buses versus M-Pesa after M-Pesa had gotten a decent scale. And there was just a shift there. So I think that just like startups can try to go too broad and run out of resources, I think that large companies innovating have the same problem where they'll try to boil the ocean um, and not solve a singular customer pain point with a lot of focus. And I think that's killed a lot of mobile wallets from being successful as well. And it's not an easy one to solve either. Like there's P2P, there's merchant payments, there's a whole ecosystem to make a mobile wallet successful and starting with the biggest pain point for that country and solving it is I think crucial. So long way of saying, I think those three things, regulation, focus, and interoperability. But my comments are a bit outdated because I think that the, at least the interoperability point is now irrelevant if you're a tech company coming in and just building a digital experience on top of a smartphone. And so because of that, I do think you'll see more innovation in the kind of digital financial services space in emerging markets in the years to come. So Matt, when you think about the road ahead for Remitly the next two to five years, it sounds like you envision yourselves becoming the financial institution, I guess the banking institution for your current customers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what else do you see? Well, I think it really does tie to the vision of, again, focusing on the customer and it's been an underserved industry and underserved customers improving their lives by providing them the most trusted financial services on the planet. And you can imagine the wide range of financial services we can offer over time. You can imagine that while we've served 3 million customers with remittances, there are 250 million immigrants that live and work outside the country they're born. And so a term you hear often internally at Remitly that I and we say frequently is we're just getting started. And it certainly feels like that. But what you'll see from us is not a, let's go do 35 things at once to get to that vision. Let's do it in a pretty methodological focused way and let's have the audacity of that vision always lead us and have our customers and their pain points lead us, but let's take a really focused iterative strategy to get there. And it sounds like this is also an advice that you would give to would-be entrepreneurs and, and young entrepreneurs these days is to be focused. What other lessons have you learned from your entrepreneurial journey? 
Yeah, talk about focus, talk about persistence. I think the other one that comes to mind was advice I got when we did Techstars back in 2011. And the mentor that came and spoke to us, I wish I could remember his name so I could give him credit. And he said it in a little bit more crass way. So I'll say it in the crass way and then a less crass way. But he said, find something that pisses you off. And I think that entrepreneurs often, they fall in love with the product. They fall in love with the solution. They don't fall in love with, it doesn't have to be something that pisses you off. But it has to be something that you're committed to solving a problem. And that problem could be creating a completely new market, which is why I also think pissing, something that pisses you off is a little too narrow. It doesn't have to be something like what I saw pissed me off. Uh, and But there could be just new market opportunities that solve a problem that you're passionate about as an entrepreneur. And then the product, the solution to that problem should and will pivot. We didn't talk about some of our early pivots but ours pivoted early days, probably less than a lot of companies pivot, but almost every company has early and significant pivots. And I think entrepreneurs that fall in love with their product, instead of falling in love with the problem they're trying to solve, I think will most likely fail because the first iteration is not gonna be the iteration that actually works. And I build on that to say, to recognize how hard it is to get good feedback on your product, on your solution to your proposed problem. Because investors don't really want to give it to you. They want to stay in touch. They don't want to piss you off. Customers, I mean, there's all the Eric Reis lean startup ways of doing that, which I think we did early days. But it has to be very methodological for people to be in. And you have to be very open for people, whether it's investors, customers, et cetera, to actually give you feedback. Because otherwise, it just won't come. You'll get platitudes. You'll get non-answers. And the reality is, whatever product you're working on, especially if you haven't pivoted or changed a few times and you're in the early stages of your startup, it's probably wrong. So back up, define the problem you're trying to solve and then seek feedback in an iterative fashion, in a focused fashion to iterate your product to solve the problem. Don't fall in love with your product. Outstanding. Probably fall in love with the process and the the problem, but not the product. That's great. Uh, Matt, before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about your personal life and about your some of your hobbies. Are there any hobbies that you've picked up uh, in the last six months? I'm a big exercise enthusiast. So I am a runner. I'm a biker, which I've been doing a little more as the weather has been nicer. And those are the main things that I've been, yeah, just doing a bunch of new different types of exercise. That's what keeps me going, keeps me balanced. Well, my fascinating stuff, everything you're, you're building at, at Remitly is, is really you know, an example to the industry feel that we could be talking for hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you, you're always invited. I know you went to, uh, not, not Wharton. I won't, I won't say the name. <laughs> but you're always invited to Wharton. You know, we'd love to see you on campus once things go back to normal. Thank you. Yeah, real honor to be on, on your program. And thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's our honor and our pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.